I allowed my perception of one particular person to keep me from participating in this kind of giant secular bubble until it was almost too late. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Sloan Ortel. Sloan, are you ready to rock? Of course I am. Oh, yeah. Let me tell the audience a bit about you. Sloan Ortel explores and explains connections between capital markets and economic cultural forces. She publishes The Sloan Zone, an email newsletter that comes when you least expect it and makes more sense than it should. And... She works as an independent strategy consultant for leading investment organizations after spending nearly a decade supporting the members of CFA Institute as a curator, commentator, collaborator, and subject matter resource. Prior to that, she was one of the youngest registered representatives at Oppenheimer and Company and then helped establish Newport Value Partners, a research firm which served hedge funds and family offices. And before I let you add your tidbits, I just want to say that we met in Mumbai and we went to a amazing dinner that was a, how many courses were, you know, I don't know, seven well, courses? I must have been like 12 or, or 12. 15 courses. Yeah, that's uh, right. So good. And it was such a great, memorable experience, not only for the uniqueness of the food, and I, I swear, I got to find the actual name of that place and put a link in the show notes for it because it was really an amazing experience. But also, our conversation kept us going throughout all of those courses. So, Sloan, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Um, yeah, sure. I, you know, I guess what I would add to all of that is that you know, I'm sort of, you know, for all of these you know, wonderful privileges of being associated with places like the CFA Institute and the very cool people that I've met, through that, I very much live at a life as sort of a dirty hipster, basically, like other people would describe. So I tend to be in places where most folks wouldn't recognize my employer. And, uh, you know, I really kind of relish being this sort of insider outsider where I can sort of move fluidly through, through a lot of different spaces. I think that's a good background for this particular story. I, I think that's very true. And I remember seeing some of the stuff that you've written about and some of the experiences that you had in India. I'm just thinking of some of the pictures I saw, the colors, the experiences that you were getting. Clearly, you were moving fluidly through that society. So that's something I saw for sure. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. And the circumstances leading up to it, it is, look, we're in, you know, kind of summer of 2010, right? I have just joined CFA Institute and like I am this incredibly low level person surrounded by really some, some of the folks who are like writing the comment letters on behalf of the global membership to, you know, pick a regulator. And it's at this time when, you know, we're very much rebuilding, you know, the architecture of global investing from scratch, right? And one of the cool privileges that comes with that job is that, you know, the people you meet are just outstanding in terms of both the energy they bring to it, like CFA Institute is a sort of volunteer-led, member-driven organization at its roots. And so I spent the better part of a decade talking with folks from every conceivable time zone about 
you know, really doing things that mattered for people there, like building better financial markets that can better serve the, the people. And that's wonderful and noble, but for my own personal investing, it sort of created the idea that investments came in a particular package, right? And so forward back to 2010, you know, I'm sitting out in, in Williamsburg, this very peculiar roommate of my moves into my house, right? And, you know, he sort of eats nothing but meat, is from Eastern Europe, and is in the process of moving all of his personal wealth into Bitcoin. And, you know, like I was able to sort of make sense of what Bitcoin was. Like we read the paper, I read the paper basically when it came out as a result of knowing this weird man. And, you know, like I was like, oh gosh, that could really solve some pretty interesting things. But he, you know, had this friend group that I could only characterize as insane. <laughs> he uh, associated very closely with this toothless man who liked to sort of roam around my neighborhood and, you know, try to, uh, you know, really just not even start fights, but just like start trash talking to strangers. And like, I really, it's, he was so profoundly eccentric that, you know, I just sort of painted the entire thing with this perception I had of, of this person. And that kind of kept me from being willing to pull the, pull the trigger at all for any of the, you know, on any of the intuition I was feeling about what it might go on to be worth, right? You know, in 20, I think uh, it would have been 11 or, or 2012, you know, where this, this guy has moved out. He left a Geiger counter in my apartment, by the way. And, uh, you know, so he's moved out and we have this extra computer and I start, you know, doing the math about how much Bitcoin I could make by setting it up to mine, right? Just conclude it's such a silly thing and that silly man like, and, you know, gosh, you know, the real investment value was, you know, arrived at through a systematized process that could stand up to the informed scrutiny of my peers, right? Not just, I happen to know this weird, you know, wizard-like man <laughs> left in a puff and filled my apartment with vague traces of Bitcoin for some reason. As you know, the story would continue to build in, in its level of recognition, I still just kind of discounted it as something that, that might make sense, even as I sort of saw trading entry points and you know, started to talk to people who kind of what you might describe as institutional who are interested in it. Honestly, that you know, the story kind of builds to a crescendo in the latter phases of the bubble, starting in you know, maybe October and November of 2017. When I decided that I would try to lose $200 on purpose in Bitcoin, and if I could do that, then I would put much more money in. The logic being that it actually takes skill to trade the thing. I should be able to lose money on purpose. And if I could do that, then I do actually have evidence that there is skill involved in trading the entity. And I can sort of rationalize uh, putting a larger allocation into it. Like I put in 200 bucks and it became $1,400 in like, you know, the better part of, you know, six weeks or something like that. And then I, you know, I sort of took out my initial 200 bucks and just ignored the stuff. And I guess these days now I sort of log in every once in a while and, and check the total balance of my, you know, what could have been my winnings. I think it's like 35 bucks now down from, I guess, 1200. Yeah. I mean, the, the overall, I guess, upshot of the story is that I allowed my perception of one particular person to keep me from participating in this kind of giant secular bubble until it was almost too late. Right. And when I did, I did it basically as this puckish stunt, not as, as what could have been sort of a more valid and broad based participation in the, um, in the ecosystem. It's interesting because you have the capacity to understand it. You had the capacity to gain from it, but yep. yet, you know, uh, the circumstances, you know, were what had an influence. So tell me what lessons did you learn from this experience? 
Well, I, th- I think just to believe in myself, right? You know, so the I, I think like part of the reason I wasn't talking about it is because I thought that people would perceive me as being as goofy as this person, you know? So I, I think that, you know, taking the impulse to actually, you know, trust my own instincts is, is really the lesson. And that's really what I should have done. It's beautiful. Yeah. I think we just got the title for our podcast, Believe in Ooh. Yourself. Yeah. I love that. You bet. Um, Let me mention some takeaways that I get from it. The first thing about your story is that it's great evidence that the people around us influence us and influence Mm -hmm. our thinking. We all hear the, you know, you're you're the average of the the five people, you know, that, that you're friends with type of thing. But when it comes to investing, I think this is a good lesson that we tend to think and operate in a bubble and the people mm-hmm. around us are tend to be maybe like-minded thinkers. And therefore, whatever's happening around us is what shapes us. And I think the one of the lessons is, you know, to make sure that you're building your your ideas out inside and outside the bubble. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. To to make sure that you're open to input that doesn't come in a conventional package is absolutely critical. You know, and it's and it's one of those things where like I just can't overstate how resistant people are to things that don't come the way they expect. I am one of them. And if you've ever spent any time around a large institutional process, you know that there is sort of a, I guess, almost a parade type uh, function that things need to fulfill in order to actually get done. And so, you know, I I think it's sort of important to all of us to self-actualize in the openness of our ideation processes. That leads me to one of my pet peeves is that basically when we coddle and protect big businesses, government, you know, works so closely with big businesses and banks and pharma and all of that, what happens is that we, we force that conformity onto society. When, exactly. in, when in fact, the innovation, the ideas, the different ideas, the different ways of doing things are right out there in the minds of the people. When you protect a bank, I mean, I, I think of Citibank just because I worked there many years ago. When it has some sort of protections and when it's too big to fail and when there's so much regulation that only they can afford, you know, that massive bank can afford to actually overcome that regulation. Basically, that bank just can't fail. And if I look inside of that bank, having worked in there, there's so many weak points that are are driven by this institutional, you know, institutionalized thinking that's only natural. I mean, it's the way things go when you're in a big institution. And I always think that when people talk about, we got to break up these banks, I'm like, wait a minute. First, you put them in a protected position. And now you say you got to break them up when we have entrepreneurial people all around the world and in America that could attack segments of that large company's business and crush it. And so that's where I always come down on the side of free markets and, and feel like, you know, that's a critical thing. And that has to do with bringing in different ideas, cherishing them, you know, bringing them into the exchange. Yeah. Well, you know, I think too, one of the things that's so offensive about the coddling of, you know, the, the systemically important financial institutions at some level to me is that to have the entities in our society, which are pronounced too big to fail, be profit making entities, as opposed to like human rights type functions, kids should have like, you know, 
the importance of getting a kid a good school is too big to fail, right? Like we cannot as a society afford to fail that test. Whether there's, you know, derivative manifestations from unraveling these large financial institutions, it, you know, it, it's, it's really shocking that, that we've sort of arrived in this position where, you know, those are the things that we discuss is too big of, uh, to fail, not like our responsibility as a, as a people to respond to certain community challenges, you know? Amen. There we go. Getting back into our awesome discussions that we've had before. (laughs) Let's now bring it back. And I want to ask you, let's think of that young person that's looking at Bitcoin right now. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're kind of at the stage that you were at at that time. Based on what you learn from your story and what you continue to learn in your life, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Well, you know, it's funny now with Bitcoin because like I I don't like, you know, hope to own Bitcoin anytime in the near future. So, you know, at some level, if someone is interested in Bitcoin or anything, I would encourage them to, you know, really just sort of develop the confidence that the way that they see the world is in accordance with reality. Give themselves permission to be weird and to kind of, you know, act in ways that are unconventional and to, to lose, right? Give yourself permission to make a mistake. You know, I, I think those are, you know, that three-step process basically can't fail in, you know, the broader project of making you a good human being, even if it, it may fail in the near term in the sort of investment returns department. I like that. The idea of kind of giving yourself space. You build confidence, yeah. be weird, and don't <laughs> be afraid to lose. Now, I would add on to that uh, that's not necessarily related to what you're saying, but just one of the key things, uh, the second most common mistake is fail to properly assess and manage risk. So I think mm. an overlay to that is to say, and do it on a small stage in the beginning. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, position sizing is like 100% of why I have such wrinkle-free, beautiful skin. Um, <laughs> exactly. Not, now, we, now we know the secret. Yeah, it, that's it. It's, you know, I don't moisturize. It's all position sizing. Fantastic. All right. Well, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? I'm looking forward to turning uh, one of my, my engagements into something that general public will see some more, and particularly the investment community will see some more output from. We're building what I hope is kind of an elephant gun, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with some people. Fantastic. Glad to hear that. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risks, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. In addition, if you or someone you know has a story to tell, just click on the social media or email icons of your choice in the upper right-hand corner of myworstinvestmentever.com, and that will come directly to me. As we end, Sloan, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, just live your lives, man. Amen. And you are evidence and proof of that. So I respect you. So great to talk. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.